Mr. Barton Maths Podcast with me, Craig Barton, a show where I interview people who interest and inspire me from the wonderful world of education. Now, this is an episode from season three of my Research in Action mini-series, where I interview researchers from Loughborough University's Centre for Mathematical Cognition about their chosen areas of interest and the implications for teachers in the classroom. And I try my very best, and always fail, not to come across completely out of my depth. This season has six episodes, and as I'm sure you know by now, I'm releasing one a week to get us through the summer holidays, and we're up to episode five, the penultimate one. This week, I'm delighted that we're joined by Kinga Morsanyi. Kinga is a developmental psychologist and currently a senior lecturer in mathematical cognition at Loughborough University. Her main focus is on mathematics learning, but her research interests also encompass reasoning and decision making, the motivational and emotional aspects of learning, flipping heck, and educational approaches to improving thinking and mathematics skills. But pertinent to today's conversation, Kinga is also researching the atypical development of cognitive skills in autism and, the subject of our talk today, developmental dyscalculia. Now, as I'm sure you know, when recording these episodes, I'd lost my voice, so apologies in advance for the croakiness, coughs and occasional high-pitched squeals. Enjoy this one. Well, it gives me tremendous pleasure to welcome Kinga Mulsani to the Mr. Barton Maths Podcast. Hello, Kinga. How are you? I'm good. Thank you, Craig. How are you? Very well, thank you. Really looking forward to this conversation. So to start with, can you tell listeners a little bit about yourself, please? Yeah, so I, I'm working at the Centre for Mathematical Cognition at Loughborough University. I'm currently a senior lecturer in Mathematical Cognition. I'm I'm a psychologist by background. So I, I should say that I'm not really a, a maths <laughs> person in the sense of having a like really um, like background in complex maths. And um, um, yeah, I'm a developmental psychologist interested in how, um, in, in general, how high level uh, thinking skills develop. So that's kind of my main interest. And this is what brought me to mathematical cognition in the end. Amazing. Sounds absolutely fascinating. And I'll tell you what, you still can't avoid the math speed dating questions, I'm afraid, King. I'm going to have to subject you to these. So uh, question number one, what is your favourite number and why? Yeah, so um, so when you said, uh, um, yeah, so my favourite number is 21 and that's my birthday. And <laughs> so like, like I said, I probably you expected some really clever uh, kind of math related <laughs> response to this but I, I was just thinking about this and and uh, each time I, I just came back to 21 <laughs> but I like this number it's a strong it's a good number it's a good <laughs> good number and a good reason I love it all right number two what was your favorite topic in maths as a student yeah so I I always liked uh, so so I I didn't do high level maths and but I, I always liked maths at school and um, I especially liked uh, problem solving. So when you are given a problem and you have to think about it and try to find uh, the solution. So I really like geometry 
you know, when you work with a with a ruler and a bow compass, and you have to kind of work out <laughs> relationships between objects. So yeah, I really like that, and I like the word problems as well. So so basically, anything where you are given Amazing. a problem and you kind of have to think about how to solve it. Yeah. Love it. Fantastic. And final question, what job would you like to do if you weren't involved in education and research? Yeah, so I I I mean, I guess I, I enjoy working at the university. I like research and and I like um, working with students, uh, but I I think I'm I'm more interested in the research part than the the all the, the other admin and uh, and uh, like I mean, uh, the teaching part I I especially like when when I work with with students one to one and and we are working on a project together. I don't mind lecturing too much, but anyway, I I think if I wasn't a psychologist, I probably would like to be an archaeologist. So I'm still I'm really interested in people and you know uh, what and and I think thinking about people in ancient time and what they did why they did it how they did it how they solved uh, the problems <laughs> that they had to face in their daily life using the the tools that that were available at the time and technology and knowledge i i think i'm I, i'm just really interested in people so probably that would be i mean if um yeah i i mean in an ideal world if you could get a, a job and <laughs> get paid for <laughs> doing it but uh, yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. That's brilliant. Okay. Well, before we dive into your chosen area of research, I always like to ask guests for a favorite failure. So something in your career that didn't go according to plan, but you learned something valuable from the experience. Yeah. I mean, I, uh, you probably got this response from other researchers as well, that, that our life is basically a, a series of <laughs> productive failures when you submit papers, <laughs> when you apply for grants and so on. And, and you fail, but you get some feedback, and then maybe you you come up with a, a better version of what you um, what you did before. But I I guess I have a few things. So so when I started, and I, and I see this with uh, PhD students as well, that often they um, they think that um, whatever you see in papers, it's true and and it's like replicable and reliable and so on. And I guess uh, for me the the first uh, thing was to realize that that is not always the case. You you do a study which is quite similar to somebody else's study, and then you find uh, different things. And and I guess I learned so much about these failed replications because I I had some strong beliefs. For example, um, uh, my initial um, expectation, which you can see in the literature, was that, um, for example, autistic uh, people are really good at maths. And this just turned out to be <laughs> not the case at all when you actually do, the, do studies with them. Or another one, uh, which I think is important to me because I felt uh, it was kind of something personal, which is stereotype threat. I don't know if you heard about this um, concept. No, um, no. Okay, so the idea of a stereotype threat is that um, um, you belong to some kind of a minority group, or or it doesn't have to be a minority group, but for example, uh, like a stereotype group, for example, that women are not as good at math as men. This could be one uh, kind of stereotype, and um, and so 
so in these situations, people who came from these uh, underrepresented or or stereotyped groups, uh, they might not be able to perform at their best because of you know like they they experience some anxiety or or because other people just don't help them to make the contributions that they could make and so on and so i i it, it's something that um, kind of i i could identify with and i i found that it's quite believable but the, there were some studies which said that you can induce stereotypes relative women just by asking them for the gender before they do some math tasks so you you ask them to report the gender then they work through some math tasks and and so some uh, studies claim that after this, women underperform in mass because they were kind of reminded that they are women. And so these kinds of studies, uh, now we can also see in the literature that they don't really replicate. But, um, but you know, I had to do some studies like this to, to actually see that it, this doesn't work. And, and I think a final one that I want to mention is in relation to mass anxiety, which is um, um, like... You you can see I mean there is very good evidence for uh, mass anxiety and how the how this can affect uh, mass performance in the classroom but but actually when you try to induce mass anxiety in the lab it's very very difficult so people just don't don't get I mean if you want to make them more anxious about mass <laughs> than than they are already it's it's just very dip- difficult so so it's uh, I th- I think this was also an important learning experience um, for me just to understand that that people get anxious very easily in in some situations so for example when they uh, have to speak in public for example that's a very anxiety provoking situation but um, in the lab um, when I, I guess they they arrive with a certain level of anxiety because it's an unfamiliar situation it's just really difficult to find ways to make them even more um, anxious so that I I think this is kind of a a little bit of a mystery about anxiety that sometimes you can make people anxious in quite like subtle and and like sometimes unintended ways (laughs) and at the same time if you want to make them anxious it's not it's not really difficult probably because it can be quite personal what what makes people anxious and why It's really, really interesting that. Um, just one one follow up question uh, to that, Kinga, if that's okay. Uh-huh. I'm I'm really interested by the example you gave about the um, reminding people of their gender before they do a test and how potentially uh-huh. that that kind of perceived stereotype may may inhibit performance. So um, <laughs> this is I'll come across as very ignorant throughout this entire conversation. I, I just kind of assumed that that was a thing, that that was kind of a well-established research finding. But is this something that you were saying that that hasn't been replicated? And what happens in that yeah. situation if, if kind of a, a well-established thing then doesn't get replicated? Does the thing kind of disappear oh. or does it get retested? Well, what happens in that situation? Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of uh, surprised that nobody brought this up during these research conversations before because I, there's uh, it, so this this was quite a big thing a few years ago in psychology when when um, I don't know who started this movement but basically they they started to go back to some you know like uh, findings that you can find in in textbooks and some classic. Uh, experiments and and so somebody started the movement basically trying to replicate these 
famous findings and see um, if if they well one one thing is if they still apply after maybe fifty years or or thirty years, um, uh, like after the original publication, but also just to see some some trendy findings whether they really uh, you can really see these uh, in different labs in different cultures and and you very often find that that um, maybe sometimes um, some findings replicate but not exactly the same way as in the original study and sometimes you just so so there were actually studies where um, where many labs from many countries worked together to try to replicate the finding and most of them didn't find any effect that was similar to the original one so so the, it, it's been a big movement in psychology and I think it's really important that uh, people are now working hard to to make sure that that findings are applicable and they don't just rush to publish findings and and kind of sometimes find, try to find post hoc explanations for why uh, they found something so so there's more rigor in psychology as a result of this movement but the, uh, specifically about this finding what happens if you find out that something doesn't replicate i think um probably some people will still believe in it but they will still <laughs> I I think they there's probably like a fade out effect that after a while people just um, just accept it doesn't um, doesn't replicate and doesn't uh, uh, work at least not in 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 the way that they expected. It's interesting, isn't it? Can you give us a, a few more examples of of any of the kind of big findings that have, have failed this kind of replication test over recent years? Um, I don't know. I think in in terms of maths education, yeah, actually I can think of one which could be interesting and that's also related to maths anxiety. So, the, so there was a paper which uh, claimed that if you um, just give paper and pencil to students before they sit an exam and, and ask them to write about their worries about maths and and um, you know why they are anxious about this exam after this they will perform better and the idea was that kind of uh, so so how mass anxiety works i mean we know that it it actually works in this way is that it occupies working memory space so your kind of mental uh, workspace and and uh, you you have lots of anxious um, thoughts like um, oh I won't be able to solve these problems I I will be too slow I won't be able to finish it and I will perform really badly and so on and so the idea was that that if you write all of these down and and you kind of clear your mind before sitting the exam then you will do better and so this is one famous <laughs> example of a finding that didn't uh, didn't replicate. Yeah, so I guess it's it's not so wow. easy to, to just kind of get rid of anxious uh, thoughts. Jeez, it's it's really interesting, isn't it? And I guess it's that old cliche that it's. I guess that the findings that whenever the the kind of retest gets done and it turns out this study doesn't replicate that that very rarely gets as much publicity as the original finding does. So it's yeah, still just, kind I of mean, that, lodged in people's mind yeah. that it works. <laughs> yeah, of course. I mean, I think there's a bias in in, uh, but uh, yeah, as as a result of this movement, it has changed a little bit. But uh, there is indeed a bias for positive findings that people want to hear about something interesting, something that you can do, and 
they don't want to hear so much about things that don't work. But I think that's equally important uh, for your work to know where, where you shouldn't allocate resources. And yeah. That's really interesting. And just one more thing. I could talk to you all day about this, King. This is absolutely fascinating. Just just one more thing on the maths anxiety kind of finding. There's a, there's a danger, isn't there, that you, you, ha- you have a teacher who reads the original finding that getting students to write down all their thoughts before an exam is helpful. And they start using that with their students and they find, actually, this does seem to help. But then they read the other finding that suggests, no, actually, it, it's not replicable. It doesn't happen. It doesn't help. So they they stop doing it. And I guess that's a problem, isn't it? Because if 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 you've changed certain variables and you've found a way to make it work, it doesn't mean that just because research suggests that it doesn't work all the time, you should stop doing it. It's a really tricky thing for teachers to 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 kind of do, isn't it? When do you follow the, the research? When when do you not? I don't know if that makes sense at all. Yeah, I, I think it does make perfect sense. And and I think this is also important. Uh, in um in research in general that um that if you so so i think if you cannot replicate somebody else's findings the first thing to consider is what is different and why it didn't work for me and maybe i did something you know i missed some essential detail here that that uh, would make it work also i um, it just reminds me of um, a colleague who who does research with babies and um, so he moved to a different lab um, from Italy to Hungary, actually. Um, and uh, and then uh, what he found was that he couldn't replicate his own <laughs> own previous uh, findings. With um, I mean, it, it was a question of is it the Hungarian babies that <laughs> they are just different <laughs> from Italian babies in some way? But actually, it turned out after. I think uh, a lot of uh, so he worked with I think six to nine months old babies and what what he he found was that what he showed them some stimuli on the computer and and he expected some reaction in terms of how long they are looking at different displays and um, I think there was something about the lighting in that lab that the lamp or the or some kind of reflection on the wall was much more interesting than his. Uh, is um, uh, still high on the computer, but it took him, I think, almost a year to to figure out what was wrong and why he he couldn't replicate things. So I mean, I think I mean, if something works in the classroom, I think teachers should just keep doing it uh, <laughs> and uh, not not listen to researchers. But I think sometimes um, there is this kind of expectation and you know self fulfilling prophecies that. That you know that um, that maybe teachers react to some students in a different way, and you know so so maybe um, why something happens is not really uh, because of the intervention, but how because of the teachers' attitudes and and so on. So I think teachers should be also a bit self-reflective and and think about the the mechanisms and not just use. Um, you know, like in a religious way, some some practices. It's really interesting, King, and that's fascinating. That and that's that's just all background, of course, to what we're what we're really talking about today, which is your your chosen area of research. So, do you want to tell us a bit about it? What what are we going to be discussing? Um. Yeah. So so I guess I wanted to talk to you about uh, dyscalculia first of all. 
And so dyscalculia is um, um, is a specific learning disorder. And I know that um, teachers don't really like the term disorder, so I'm I'm using it. Um, um, in a, uh, if I can say uh, quite, I, I like, I mean, that's why I probably prefer the term dyscalculia because um, um, disorder, what we mean by it is, is basically an atypical way of uh, developing, which, which kind of um, comes from some internal, maybe biological um, reasons of how um, a person's brain uh, developed. And so dyscalculia is a persistent uh, difficulty with um, um, mathematics, um, which cannot be attributed to some obvious external factors. Um, it's relatively resistant to interventions, and it causes significant challenges for the individual. And, and so I think despite that it causes significant challenges, I, I guess also to teachers, but, um, but uh, also to, to uh, pupils, that's... I guess that's the main thing that I'm interested in. That's brilliant. I wonder if you could give us a, a, a bit of an insight as to as to what dyscalculia looks like. And in particular, um, and this may be a terrible question, Kinga, so please forgive me on this, but how does it look different from, let's say, maths anxiety? And how does it yeah. look different mm -hmm. from somebody just not being good at maths, like just struggling with, with, with maths full stop? But what are the differences? Yeah. Yeah, I think I think the question about mass anxiety is really important because I I quite often see in in presentations in materials for for teachers and so on that that these uh, two are almost used in, in interchangeably these two terms, and I would say that dyscalculia is really different um, from uh, mass anxiety in the sense of uh, um, <clears throat> of of really uh, something um, in in the way you process information about numbers, which is different. So I I guess uh, that that you struggle with um, with maybe grasping some concepts which don't uh, cause a problem for other people, and uh, something which which is quite um, a central concept um, in the dyscalculia literature is is magnitude processing. So an idea that that you are able to link um, specific numbers to quantities. So what is what does it mean uh, to have ten items? How is it different from three items? This is very basic, but but some people uh, just uh, have difficulty with grasping this. Or or what is zero? You know what what does it mean that um, or what does the number zero really represent in terms of magnitudes in in terms of quantities? Um, so I guess um, uh, this Kakulia would be somebody who's who's really struggling even with very basic concepts of of mathematics and of course as mathematics is really cumulative because they struggle with some basic concepts they <coughs> they will have difficulties with uh, building on these uh, basic concepts and developing a more advanced knowledge and math anxiety is is totally different in a sense that. A mass anxious person can have really good math skills, but for some reason, uh, they develop these ideas that they are not good at math. Even, um, I mean, there's also I I think this is also a big difference that uh, there's a gender difference in math anxiety. So so females are usually more anxious about math, and and um, in in the case of dyscalculia, you you don't see this uh, gender difference. So it can affect anybody. 
Uh, and mass anxiety, you often find that um, that females would be more uh, anxious, and and then they might have um, the um, the capacity. They they might be able to do really well uh, in mass, but if anxiety kicks in, this will impede uh, on their performance. So so I guess uh, mass anxiety is is almost like an external. Uh, things these uh, what what I said before these anxious thoughts flooding your mind and and really distracting you while trying to do maths. Whereas uh, dyscalculia is not a distraction; is is something which is uh, in you and which which makes it difficult to to learn maths, whether you like maths or you dislike maths, whether you are anxious about it or you don't really care about it. That's a really useful distinction that that can get. And what what about? And you've got to be careful with these with these. Oh, sorry, go on. Yeah, I mean, I hope this makes sense from a teacher's perspective. But I I think it is really important to distinguish uh, between uh, mass anxiety and and dyscalculia and and to be um, like clear about this distinction. Yeah, absolutely, and I think that's a really, really clear distinction. And um, I also just want to want to return to to this notion, and you've got to be careful with the, with these terminology, particularly um, with, with around teachers and students of this word ability. Um, is what would what would dyscalculia look different like? Sorry, what's the difference between a student who's got dyscalculia and somebody who's just doesn't ha- has a lower ability for learning mathematics is is that a distinction that's that's worth making um, yeah i mean it's a good question i think there's a there's a debate in the literature whether there are qualitative differences between uh dyscalculic uh, and non-dyscalculic people or whether they are simply uh the lower end of a continuum where which which implies that they are not qualitatively different they they have less of some kind of essential ability or or i don't know what's the best way of saying it because it's not one ability i think it's it's um it's a range of um things so i think this is also important about dyscalculia that you need a range of abilities including attention working memory and and this kind of um, more specific uh, magnitude related understanding so so there are many reasons why uh, somebody could be bad at maths, but how how do you distinguish between a kind of a real dyscalculic person and somebody who's just not doing well at maths? I think the main point is is that uh, if somebody's not doing well at maths for some kind of external reasons, for example, not having good teachers or not uh, um, not um, attending school for some missing school because of some health reasons or or some other external circumstances. Um, what you will will find is that these uh, people would be would improve a lot if they get uh, some support and intervention. And uh, people with dyscalculia would be the ones who, even if they get high quality intervention, they would still. Uh, struggle with some things and and they would need much more um, input and instruction to to be able to learn some some math concepts interesting interesting and would it be possible to look at a piece of work of let's say a younger child 
or a piece of work of an older child and diagnose from that whether they're suffering from dyscalculia or would you need more information than that? Yeah, I mean, I guess what, what you mean is some kind of typical errors that dyscalculic um, children or people would make. Is, is this what you mean? Uh, or, yeah, it's exactly right. Yeah, okay. So so some kind of error analysis. Um, I would say that maybe it's not so... I mean, this this is not the typical approach that uh, researchers take. So what... Uh, what happens is that we are trying to look at um, uh, some more basics. Uh, I mean, the, at least the typical approach that I know of is uh, is to try to identify some more basic um, processes which are not you would you wouldn't necessarily call them as maths uh, call them maths tasks. They would be um, like skills that we think underlie um, mathematics learning, uh, such as, for example being able to identify the position of a number on a number line. Uh, so this is a, a very often used task in, in this Kakulia research. And, and we often find that... that um, so, so this is exactly the, the lack of um, intuition of what numbers uh, or about what numbers represent. So if you give a, a 1 to 100 uh, number line and you ask people to, to mark uh, different numbers, uh, then you will see that that people with dyscalculia generally have have a, a greater error. They they would their guesses would be much worse than than people with higher mathematics ability, for example. Interesting. And does it I mean, um, uh, does dyscalculia? Oh, sorry. Go. On. No, I mean other tasks which have been used are simple, simply just giving two numbers to people like four and nine and asking them to say which one is bigger. And, and so so um, this is also a task which seems to discriminate well between um, people with higher and lower uh, mathematics ability and potentially with uh, also people with dyscalculia. So, so basically what you do here is uh, you ask people to compare two numbers and people uh, who are better at maths will be much faster and much uh, more accurate in in uh, doing the, or making these comparisons. Um, yeah, so so I guess that we we tend to use these very simple tasks um, in um, in this Kakulia research instead of doing actually giving people um, like real maths problems. And I think the reason for this is that when you give people real math problems there are so many factors that could affect like uh, performance reading ability um you know that what what they learned at school how they learned those things at school so so that i think that's why we we tend to focus on really simple tasks tasks in research which are much easier to interpret Really interesting, this Kinga. Um, my, my next question based on this is, would dyscalculia only really reveal itself with students struggling with number tasks? And what I mean by that is, would a dyscalculic student be fine with geometry, be fine with algebra? Is it, is it predominantly number that the issues yeah. uh, lie? Okay. okay, so this is this is super interesting. And, and I think I can uh, refer back to math anxiety as well, um, relating to this point that that in the case of math anxiety, I 
we had we have done several studies looking at you know what what are the mass tasks where you see the effect of mass anxiety and usually it's only the tasks with numbers so exactly what you say that when so it almost seems like there are some people who when they see numbers they are they just have this negative reaction like i i cannot do this but but they are okay with other types of um mass which don't um include actual numerals uh, and uh, I would say this Kakulia would, um, at least this is what we found in a recent, uh, recent study. And this is how actually the diagnostic criteria uh, changed in recent years for, for this Kakulia. The, the, the definition was focused on arithmetic skills, so problems with basic arithmetic and, and uh, fluently recalling arithmetic facts. And now it's actually um, the, the di- diagnosis encompasses all areas of mass. And this is exactly what we found in a recent study as well, that, that dyscalculic children or children that we identified as dyscalculic were, um, were struggling with all different domains um, of mathematics uh, using a curriculum-based test. So, so when we administered them uh, this test, they were equally uh, um, struggling with, or they equally struggled with arithmetic uh, measurement, um, like um, word problems, math facts, and so on. So it was a quite general uh, problem. And I, I should also say that this calculia extends beyond domain, the domain of mathematics as well. So we see this calculic people struggling with time estimation, time management, um, attention, uh, learning musical concepts, uh, learning um, dance mu- moves or, or like learning kind of movement sequences or performing uh, like a series of actions. Uh, so, so yeah, it's a more, it's something more than just uh, a problem with numbers and definitely more than just a problem with arithmetic skills. Got it. And do you have a sense, Kinga, of the proportion of, of the population or of, of children who would be dyscalculic? And my follow-up question to that is, is, is it a spectrum? Is it, can you be more dyscalculic than, than someone else or is it kind of a black and white category? Yeah, yeah so, so that's a very good question. And I would say that actually this is also something new in the, in the diagnostic criteria or the official diagnostic criteria uh, of dyscalculia. So the idea is that, yes, you can be more or less uh, dyscalculic. And uh, uh, so when, when uh, during the diagnostic process, it's important to establish to what extent this person uh, needs support or how serious uh, their problems are with, uh, with numbers and all the associated um, I- issues in dyscalculia. And regarding the prevalence, uh, it's between... Um, uh, usually the the typical number that is given is between three and six percent but um, in, in um, a study that I conducted uh, the exact uh, prevalence was 5.7 percent that we found so I would say about um, five to se- five to six percent maybe so about one in 20 uh, children or one child in each classroom more or less at least one child Wow, this is this is fascinating, this Kinga. A, a few more questions um, about the the diagnostic test. Um, I wonder if you could tell us, well, three things really. Um, what what does it look like? This test for dyscalculia, 
Um, does it change depending on the age of the child? Would a test for a 16-year-old look different from a test for, say, a five- or six-year-old? And, and how reliable is the test at identifying it? Um, yeah, so I would say uh, this is a good question. There are um, some commercial screeners available. Um, and um, how accurate they are, I I don't know because um, I haven't used them. <laughs> we are developing one, and and it's work in progress. So, so I think um, I mean what I can say is that um, in in our um, study that we are conducting, what what we are trying to do is um, is to look at these basic uh, skills that I mentioned uh, to you. Uh, so basically, uh, one. One is number line performance, which I described uh, before. We are looking at working memory because um, it it seems apparent from the literature that, that children uh, with dyscalculia have uh, working memory problems, especially uh, it seems that spatial working memory, so remembering locations or a series of locations, um, is an issue. Uh, then we are also looking at... Um, order processing abilities. So this is our sequencing skills. You can uh, call them uh, like that as well. So this is also um, an area where um, it seems that dyscalculic people have an issue to to um, remember and recall um, the order of numbers and also to, to be able to uh, think about relationships between, between numbers, which one is bigger, um, if I give you three numbers, um, are they in the correct order as they follow in the count list? I mean, not just one, two, three, but like, is it uh, is two, six, and nine? Are are these numbers in the correct order, or, or are they not? So, so these kinds of tasks uh, seem to discriminate well between uh, people with higher and lower. Uh, mathematics ability and then we of course have some curriculum based um, tests as well because that's important to be able to establish whether um, people have um, uh, like um, just general knowledge of uh, mathematics which is appropriate for their age and level of education um, really really interesting this this is this is fascinating um <clears throat> You mentioned there's been some new developments in, in the field of, of dyscalculia. We've talked about a couple of them. I wonder if you could just summarize those that we've talked about and if there are any other new developments that, that people should be aware of, Kinga. Um, yeah, so I think um, what is important, so one which I already mentioned is that, that dyscalculia is not just about arithmetic, it's about um, something more general. Uh, about mathematics and um, and even beyond mathematics, uh, so like this uh, these problems with with maybe um, um, just being orientated in in time and space and and sequence in like remembering and recalling reproducing sequences for example. So this is I think something new and something else which I haven't mentioned before, and which is really important is that. Um, uh, some time ago, dyscalculia was presented like a mystery that uh, it's something unexpected. There's a child who's good at everything, who's doing well at school, but then they they just uh, struggle with math. So so I think this was, and this was also a part of the diagnostic criteria. So they actually expected a discrepancy between children's level of intelligence and 
their uh, mathematics uh, skills. And so what what we actually found in one of our studies uh, that we conducted was that actually most uh, children with dyscalculia um, also had problems um, in other uh, domains of learning. So it, most of them actually had uh, lower than average IQ, although not um, like particularly low IQ, but um, but they had uh, somewhat lower IQ than, than most other children. And I mean, as a group, so we are not talking about specific individuals, but this is uh, quite typical for dyscalculic uh, children. And uh, and so so this is a big change in the diagnostic criteria that you don't expect an isolated deficit, uh, but there's more recognition of um, impairments in working memory, in attention, and maybe what you can call as executive uh, functioning. So just um, um, kind of uh, using your mental work uh, space in general. And I think what is also new in this uh, research area is a recognition that most uh, children or most people with developmental disabilities would have uh, comorbidities. So it's it's actually not very common to... So, so what you see maybe in, in um, classrooms uh, is that children usually have one diagnostic label or maybe, uh, of course, most children won't have a diagnostic label, but if they do, they, it's usually just one um diagnostic label and i think it happens also for practical reasons that uh, that um, educational psychologists or people doing um or diagnosing uh these children try to identify the the main source of difficulties that uh these children uh, should get uh, some support with but actually what is what um what you can see um in in real life is that most people with one developmental disorder will have another one as well or or maybe more than one so dyscalculia very often co-occurs with dyslexia communication uh difficulties um, autism adhd and so on so i i think this is also important to acknowledge that the, and even in these cases, because what you might find is that these children would be diagnosed with autism or ADHD, for example, but what, not with dyscalculia, because it's almost like, uh, so the attitude would be, oh, poor child, they have some, some problems, so don't, um, like, uh, don't expect them to do well uh, on maths, whereas actually they, they might really have uh, two separate um, developmental conditions, which would actually require or, or would be important um, to um, to look at um, simultaneously. Absolutely fascinating this this Kinga. Um, so let's imagine now that you're you're we've got obviously thousands of teachers listening to this and um, they've looked on their kind of class profile yeah, and they've seen that they've got some students in their class. <laughs> Please, please don't make me feel no, too anxious about <laughs> No pressure. Ah, I promise. I, pro I promise. I pro <laughs> so we've got teachers listening and they've seen on their, their kind of class profile that they've got some students in their class who have got dyscalculia. What, what, what advice would you have for teachers? How can they best help support those students? Um, yeah, I mean, this is something um, a, a bit tricky to say. So I would say... Um, um, actually, one one study that I wanted to mention, if if I may, is is a study that um, um, one of my PhD students, Alison Ruston, 
uh, did so she she um, um, she assessed uh, teachers knowledge and awareness of this Gakudia and I think uh, uh, maybe it's it's good to mention uh, so so what she found was actually that uh, teachers in general in England in the UK um, but mostly from England uh, in her sample uh, they had um, a good awareness of this Gakudia but they had a few specific uh, knowledge gaps and I think maybe it's uh, it could be Good here. Uh, good to mention here. What were the main gaps in teachers' knowledge in relation to dyscalculia? So one thing was uh, about prevalence. So we mentioned prevalence before. So about five, six percent, maybe. Um, uh, we also mentioned um, uh, this that that uh, they shouldn't expect uh, a discrepancy between IQ and um, and mathematics skills. So I guess. Uh, a child uh, who has um, um, somewhat lower IQ than other children, um, if they struggle with math, they could still have dyscalculia. And in fact, this profile is quite common. So I think it's important not to attribute math problems to other more general difficulties, but, but to kind of take it as face value that if a child really struggles to learn math, it's very likely that or, or it's it can be that they actually have a specific difficulty with math which uh, requires attention in its own right. Uh, I think uh, another gap that um, Alison identified was uh, regarding gender differences. So there's no uh, gender difference in the prevalence of dyscalculia. So I think this is important to keep in mind. Maybe sometimes teachers um, um, are more likely to say, uh, oh, this this boy is dyscalculic, and maybe they, if another child, a girl, uh, struggles equally with math, may, maybe they, they think, oh, um, this child, maybe they have lower expectation uh, for, for a girl. So I think it, it's important to, um, to, to kind of... Um, 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 take a mental note that that dyscalculia is equally common in boys and girls, and it's not like boys would be more likely to have dyscalculia because this is kind of the case for uh, a few other conditions like autism or ADHD or or dyslexia that that boys are more likely to have those uh, conditions. I think uh, maybe another issue to consider, and I'm sorry, I'm I'm quite aware that I'm not really answering your your question now because you asked me about interventions <laughs> rather than. But I think um, uh, before doing any intervention, it's it's important to kind of being aware of what uh, dyscalculia uh, is actually. So, uh, so I guess something else that the teachers were not so aware of was that um, that children might. Uh, so, so the dyscalculia is quite heterogeneous. The children might not have exactly the same difficulties with mathematics, and so it's uh, there's there's probably no one good method of intervening on dyscalculia. It it really depends on uh, the child's specific difficulties. But I would say that that um, it's important always to go back to the basics and to build up confidence and build up basic knowledge before trying to address current problems so if the child is struggling with um, multiplication or division but then they they still don't have a good understanding of uh, of place value or or like the magnitude of small uh, numbers addition um, 
subtraction, then uh, then it won't the, the intervention won't work. So it's always important to go back uh, to the basics and try to identify the point. Um, and, and it might be years uh, back in terms of the school curriculum. So, so to find a point where they lost track of things and, and go back and try to do the intervention uh, starting from that point. I, I know this could be really difficult to, to do in the classroom, but, uh, but um, it seems that this is the only uh, kind of um, way um, to, to deal with these problems, to, to try to strengthen strengthen basic knowledge and and um, what the foundations of maths and I think a final point um, that uh, we found in this study is that um, that uh, teachers were not really um, um, confident in in saying so what happens uh, with uh, children with dyscalculia developmentally could is it possible that children could just outgrow their difficulties? Does dyscalculia disappear once you finish school and and you don't need maths anymore? So what what is happening? And I, I think it's um, but at the same time, if you provide good quality intervention, is it possible that that dyscalculia just disappears? And I think maybe um, a good analogy for this is to think about dyslexia. Um, and uh, what we can see there is that uh, interventions for dyslexia could be really ef- efficient and and the profile of difficulties can, can change massively uh, as a result of good interventions. But at the same time, uh, these are lifelong conditions, so they always uh, stay uh, with the person. And once you are, it, it's not really possible to outgrow a developmental um, uh, difficulty. So I guess I mean my main advice to teachers, and and I I don't know if it's if it's very useful at all or not really, but but is to try to identify um, the basic concepts that children miss, and and often it's also recommended to use manipulatives. Uh, so so to work with manipulatives, and. Um, yeah, I I suppose something, and, and this is part of the big three that I wanted to mention at the end of this conversation, um, is um, is the Discacudia network, uh, which which kind of tries to connect teachers working on maths difficulties, and uh, they offer uh, advice and resources related to maths uh, or interventions for maths difficulties. So. I, I would really recommend teachers to look at uh, the Discaculia Networks website and and uh, they they post a lot of videos and and a lot of information on Twitter and other social media uh, sites. So I think they they could be the best um, source of information about specific uh, strategies that uh, teachers can use in the classroom. I think that's really helpful that can go some some really good practical suggestions there um just a related question to this we'll also have lots of parents listening to this if they have a child that suffers from dyscalculia and they perhaps lack some of that technical kind of knowledge that teachers have what, what can parents do to support their children yeah i mean that's a good question and this is something uh i mean i i would say probably the same as um, as teachers so i i think it's important first of all um and i know this is not easy because dyscalculia is is very very underdiagnosed so in uh, this is again referring to one of um, our studies so we found that 
that um, it was about a hundred times more likely for a child with dyslexia to to get a diagnosis than a child for dyscalculia. So, uh, so basically, dyscalculic children are very often not diagnosed. So, I, I as a starting point, and I know it's expensive as well. Um, so I, but as a starting point, it could be good to to try to seek um, diagnosis for the child. So to to do a good educational psychologist's assessment who can advise on um, or a psycho or or somebody could who could actually look at the child's cognitive profile and i think it's important not to look at just uh, mathematics skills uh, but to try to have an idea where the child might have problems is it is it about attention is it about if working memory, you know, this mental workspace, um, is it specific to certain areas of maths when we look at the maths problems? Um, and of course, taking into account any uh, comorbidities that they may have. So I think it's it's important to start with um, maybe just uh, to establish where the child is at this point, what are, what are the, and also of course, looking at their cognitive strengths. Uh, because um, uh, the child might have really good uh, verbal skills, for example. Um, they could be really creative. Uh, they might be good at working with, um, like, um, I, I don't know, with, uh, with more concrete materials and might just struggle when, when it comes to more abstract things. So I think it's important to, to first um, uh, try to see where they have their strengths and difficulties and then after that, um, uh, again, uh, trying to identify these basic uh, pieces of knowledge that might miss um, and then um, then try to uh, work on these. And I think for, for parents, it's important to, uh, to recognize that even if a child has dyscalculia, it doesn't mean that they cannot learn maths. So it's not, it's not a call for just giving up on maths um, entirely. It, it's a starting point for finding a way for that child to, to learn maths and, and to kind of get some support uh, with their difficulties. So I think uh, a diagnosis and uh, an initial assessment can be really important, but then um, maybe trying to... Uh, to, to either get external help or or for the parent to sit down with the child and, and try to explain them basic maths, um, um, which is, uh, like I said before, not necessarily the maths that they are currently learning at school, but it's important to go back to the basics and strengthen the basics. And again, I would just recommend also to parents to look at the, the resources of the Tiskakudia network and... Uh, and to maybe make uh, make contact with them and ask questions. That's really, really useful advice there, Kinga. Um, just one final question from me on this. Um, what what what's next for you in terms of your research into dyscalculia? What are you excited about looking at uh, in the near future? Yeah. So I, I mean, I think um, uh, something important is that that we are. We are working on the validation of uh, this this Kakudia screening instrument. So so we we are hoping to get data from um, up to a thousand children. I think this is more or less uh, what is what could be realistically done. So so this is uh, 
something that we are working on now and and actually if if teachers or parents who are listening to this are interested in in getting involved in in this research that would be fantastic and um and i would say i think um um uh, when when thinking about this study it's important to to look at um a range of abilities so so we would really need uh, children of all ability levels to participate so that we can really pinpoint the differences between um kind of this lowest performing 5% of of children uh, within the population so i mean i'm i'm obviously excited about this big study and and to finally put our um, materials to test because this is something that we have worked on for several year several years to refine the materials and and i think earlier you also asked me about that i i sorry i forgot to answer this question about uh, whether the same um tasks could be predictive of dyscalculia across development. We expect that some of these will be the same. For example, um, uh, spatial working memory is one thing that we expect to be uh, a predictor of dyscalculia across age groups. But um, the specific math difficulties, it's much more complicated because what you find is that educated adults can solve math problems uh, quite well, even if they have dyscalculia, uh, um, uh, simply because those problems might be so familiar, so well practiced, or they just um, uh, they were just able to, after many years, memorize uh, the results of those basic uh, problems. So, um, so yes, uh, what you can see um, across development is that um, what this dyscalculia looks like. It, it can change in some ways, but some of the basic uh, problems uh, will be will be the same across uh, children and uh, adults. So I I'm really excited about seeing the the results of this big study and how well our materials work and how so so to be able to uh, answer all of these questions that you asked at the beginning of this conversation about how precise are these instruments, how reliable they are. Um, and I guess uh, in the longer term, I'm also excited about the possibility to contribute to increasing diagnosis rates for dyscalculia. So uh, what we are hoping to do is to create a really cheap and um, practical, accessible instrument that you can use in the classroom. Maybe you could screen uh, children in 10 or 15 minutes for dyscalculia and you could be able to identify the teacher uh, or the sorry the teachers could identify the children who are um, potentially at risk of dyscalculia um yeah so i think this this is an exciting possibility and something else uh that we are working on now is um um is dyscalculia in adults so what happens with adults what are the typical problems that adults um, experience who have dyscalculia how it affects uh, their life their career prospects and um, one more thing is is comorbidities with dyslexia because what we have found um, in uh, our study so far is that dyslexic uh, children also have mathematics difficulties, and in particular, it seems to be um, like quite focused on arithmetic. So, arithmetic difficulties are um, are uh, common in dyslexia, 
and to be able to see um, like differences in the profile of children uh, with dyscalculia and dyslexia and, and also to try to uh, differentiate between math difficulties that might be attributed to dyslexia um, from uh, comorbidities between dyslexia and dyscalculia. I mean, this could this might sound a bit technical and maybe less I- interesting for teachers, but I think from a research perspective, this is really important to understand uh, these interactions between different developmental conditions and what is a comorbidity and what is um, really to uh, like. <clears throat> so when when uh, difficulties arise from two different reasons, or when uh, basically you you really have a comorbidity between disorders, so like a specific profile of children who have both dyslexia and dyscalculia, as opposed to children who who have dyscalculia without dyslexia, for example. Wow, so much stuff to research there. That's absolutely fascinating, that Kinga. I love it. Um, final question from me before I hand over to you for your big three is, um, is there an example of something important that you've changed your mind about? Um, yeah, I think... Um, um yeah i would i would think i i'm generally a a person with an open mind so i i enjoy changing my mind and probably it happens quite often uh that i change my mind about uh something i i guess in um specifically in relation to this kakudia um when i started when i went to university uh quite a few years ago um i i learned about uh, so so there was this idea which actually w- really um fascinated me and and which i i can say that was well, had a great impact on me uh and that that was this uh, conceptualization of development of disabilities like um uh, similar to to like a specific uh brain type of brain damage uh so so if you um so so if a person has a stroke it can happen that that they lose uh, a particular ability so for example uh, they cannot read anymore they cannot speak a language anymore that they spoke before and so on so so there are these um really specific uh impairments that might happen um in, in the case of adults um in, in as a result of some kind of um, uh, catastrophic event uh, in in the brain, and so when I went to university, uh, this was still um, a quite common assumption about developmental um, conditions, developmental disabilities that uh, that uh, each developmental disability has uh, just one uh, single cause and and it can be linked to one specific part of the brain so this this was called the modularity of the mind hypothesis and this was um, uh, kind of um, first um, proposed in the 1980s and and so in the 1990s uh, a lot of people were working on trying to find a single explanation to um, for autism or for uh, dyslexia and so on and uh, so I guess this was a big one, and this uh, this really fascinated me. This idea that that you could be 
<clears throat> a person who is like everybody else, completely the same uh, in every respect, apart from this really uh, one little thing uh, which is different in your brain, and and this has this big impact on you know how you interact with your uh, environment and so on. And so what um, what happened um, in the research literature is that that we found out that this this was not the case at all and and this is much more complex and and that we really have to think about developmental conditions as developmental conditions that you start from a somewhat different starting point uh, um, uh, early on as a as a child or as a baby and and this this puts you in a different um, like developmental track and and uh, that these difficulties can be quite complex and and there are compensatory mechanisms that you try to uh, using your available other resources you try to compensate for some difficulties and and so so in the end um, your mind your your brain will be atypical in many different respects and not just specifically in in this one little area and so i think this is something super important and and um so I I didn't maybe at the start you expected me to talk a little bit about my career uh, path and how I got to this point in my career. So so when I did my PhD, it was about reasoning skills, and I was interested in in, in autism, and I had this uh, specific uh, like expectation that autistic people, and and this was based on the literature at the time that autistic people. It would be really rational and they would be really kind of good at uh, kind of thinking about systems and everything which is concrete and kind of systematic and they would then uh, really struggle with intuition and and kind of these more uh, like uh, uh, I don't know things that are, are less easy to to think about in in systematic uh, terms and and I think uh, it, it it turned out to be quite wrong, and uh, my findings were much more complex than this. And and then I think it really affected how I I thought about developmental disorders and and how I kind of became a real developmental psychologist. That's yeah, brilliant. So really, really good answer. That. <laughs> no, it's a good, it's a long answer, but a good answer, Kinga. I really, really like it. That's brilliant. Right. Well, um, to wrap things up, it's over to you for your big three. Now, you've, you've mentioned one of them already, but if you want to re-mention that again, just so we've got them all together. And then as listeners know, there'll be links to each of these in the show notes. So what are you going for, Kinga? Yeah. Yeah, so so I wanted to um, suggest because uh, I know maybe teachers or parents would would like to hear about a specific really good book about dyscalculia or um, a really really good uh, resource. But I think uh, um, I I really struggled. I tried to find one and I really struggled to find one. And I think um, probably uh, what I the best thing that I can really suggest is to follow the Discaculia network because they are trying to uh, really uh, highlight latest research, highlight good practice, and also have. Uh, so they are really a network trying to connect people with practitioners, the teachers who want to improve their skills in um, in maths interventions and so on. So I think uh, probably that's uh, that's the the best thing that I can recommend as a resource. I would say that any books on Discaculia that I know about are a little bit outdated maybe, 
not necessarily reflecting um, the latest thinking about dyscalculia and and although they they could be super useful as as an introduction and and maybe uh, the practical parts of those books so i i wouldn't say that people shouldn't read those books but uh, um yeah i there's there's not one that as a researcher i would say that it's it's like perfect and and everything is true that it is written in that book so yeah i i guess i'm a bit cautious of um uh, cautious about recommending a specific book or resource and then i i wanted to recommend two other um like websites uh one is uh the conversation is uh it is um um like a research website but it's kind of a special one because the uh, uh the the articles are written by academics although with uh, the support of a a speci- specialist editor and i really like this website because they comment on current news mostly so current issues that are happening in the world so for example is i i don't know the answer i actually haven't had time to read <laughs> Uh, read this recently but for example if if we are thinking about the the heat wave in um in southern europe is it is it the sign of climate change is it something else so 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 you uh, you go there and you find the commentaries an expert um like um, opinion on uh, things that are happening in the world i i really like that website and i think it's it's a fantastic uh way of uh, communicating between like to, to to create a link between researchers and the general public and sharing uh, knowledge uh, the knowledge of the researchers and I also published a few uh, articles in the conversation so I also published on dyscalculia, um, mass anxiety and so on so if if people want to search for my work in there you, they can find it as well uh, and the other one is the BPS Research Digest and um, this is again uh, like a blog about psychology research so so basically descriptions of latest uh, um, or new findings in psychology um, and but described in an accessible way and and I think it's just uh, for people who, who are interested in psychology uh, and education there are often uh, things that that they might fi- might find relevant or, or simply just relevant to to their life and I'm just recommending both of these websites because they um, they are very high quality, well written pieces and well researched uh, pieces as well. Wow, there's three really good ones there, and as listeners know, there'll be links to those um, in the show notes. Well, I'll tell you what, King, this has been fascinating. This it's dyscalculia is a, an area that again I'm I'm guilty of not knowing enough about, but you've given some really well a really great overview of it and some really practical suggestions of where teachers can find out more. And I also really liked our discussion at the start about replication um, as well. I found that absolutely fascinating. So thank you so much for your time today. It's been brilliant. Yeah, thank you so much, Craig. And yeah, I, I just hope that some of this was useful. <laughs> yeah. Thank you.